So welcome, Rick, to the Truth Lover. Just a quick uh, introduction to our viewers. Truth Lover is a presentation from Love and Truth Party, a webinar and a podcast. Love and Truth Party is a, a self-organizing, self-replicating community and movement of love and awakening, a wisdom school facilitating and celebrating the true nature of the human being. We exist to empower the deep realization and integration of unitive consciousness of one human being and to inspire action in the world from this place as new earth ninjas. We do so in the spirit of play, holding the paradox that all is well, even and including all collective crises, while simultaneously being moved to act, to lessen suffering and serve the creation of conscious culture and society. Our projects include distributing a million love letters from the universe, inviting people to receive love and care in these, and within the happiness hacks and other resources found freely on loveandtruthparty.org and our social media. And we simply invite people to pay it forward in a social experiment of what it is to be the change. We are privileged and I am excited to be joined by Dr. Rick Hansen, PhD. Dr. Rick is a psychologist, Senior Fellow of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley, New York Times bestselling author. His books are available in 26 languages, including Hardwiring Happiness, Buddha's Brain, Just One Thing, and Mother Nurture. He edits the Wise Brain Bulletin and has numerous audio programs. A summa cum laude graduate of UCLA and founder of the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom, he's been an invited speaker at NASA, Oxford, Stanford, Harvard, and other major universities, and taught in meditation centers worldwide. His work has been featured on the BBC, CBS, and NPR, and he offers the free Just One Thing newsletter with over 120,000 subscribers, plus the online Foundations of Wellbeing program in positive neuroplasticity that anyone with financial need can access for free. It's a, a real joy to have you here, Rick, and to be exploring this beautifully rich topic that you're bio just, just sets up so perfectly, neurodharma. Thank you for joining us, first of all. Well, well you're special to me, and we go back a ways, and um, <laughs> your history and who you are is so impressive. And, and as you were reading that description of the uh, Love and Truth Party, I thought to myself, first, who wrote that? Second, how cool, <laughs> what a big swing, you know, that's a base American baseball term. Right. I don't know what the cricket equivalent would be, uh, but it's a big swing and it's an honor to be here myself. Thank you. I have a similar experience often reading it, maybe perhaps as you do reading your bio going, hmm, that's pretty cool. That sounds rather wonderful. <laughs> Happy to be involved with that. Maybe as a beginning point, can you say just a little bit, what, what is Neurodharma? I think people will probably have a, a bit of a sense, but what is Neurodharma for you? I know it's a book, it's going to be a retreat, but what does it actually mean? It's a great question. So for me, the word, which I offer respectfully in terms of my own Buddhist roots, and I don't want to offer it exploitively, but it's this idea fundamentally that the Buddha, to use to talk about him, was deeply interested in the causes the causes of suffering and happiness, mm -hmm. right? hate and love, uh, freedom and contraction. Deeply interested in the causes. 100 years ago, 
he could engage those causes entirely and only at the level of his experience, the stream of consciousness, phenomenology, at the level, let's say, of mind, broadly defined. Mind, obviously, including hearing, seeing, tasting, touching, smelling, all the aggregates. Uh, mind not being just intellect, okay? Now, 2,500 years later, we have a growing understanding of how the mental causes of happiness and suffering are embedded in underlying physical, biological, especially neurological processes. So for me, neurodharma speaks to a kind of productive intersection between the classic first-person perspective in which we're simply observing our experience directly and the modern third-person perspective that looks at the body in an objective, uh, impersonal kind of way. And with some knowledge about how the two intersect, it's really fruitful because you can use the, on the one hand, the deep contemplative insights uh, from all traditions around the world, uh, not just the Buddhist tradition. So you can use the deep penetrating vipassana or first person insights of the meditators, the contemplatives, which scientists have described as the Olympic athletes of mental training. You can use their experience and their insights to inform third person neuropsychological research and flip the other way, which is very much my own interest, by understanding something of what's happening in the hardware, you can use that to deepen your, your insight, uh, your practice, your realization. And uh, in particular, in my own case, you can use that understanding of the underlying hardware to use your mind to, in effect, intervene in your brain, to use your mind to deliberately stimulate the neural activities you care about, which strengthens them. So in effect, you can use your mind to uh, change your brain to change your mind for the better, for your own sake and that of all beings. And to summarize, while in the Buddhist tradition, as well as some other traditions, there's a lot of emphasis on mindfulness of the body, which really means an awareness of body sensations in a very deep way. That's wonderfully useful, but it's also true that we are actually body full of mind. <laughs> that it is the body in an ongoing way, that is the underlying cause, constraint, and conditioning of most, if not all, of our own moments of consciousness. And for me, there's a kind of humility, especially as a very nerdy kind of guy who loves <laughs> these crazy ideas. There's a humility in coming home to the body, to realize in an intimacy with the body, wow, it is the body that is continually making the mind. How can I use that information? to nudge my mind in a better and better direction. For me, that's what neurodharma is about. That's exquisite. I think uh, if people didn't want to buy the book or go on the retreat prior to hearing that, that very <laughs> lyrical description, then that surely would be the case now. I'm moved when I hear that. One of those two words you emphasize, one is that it be a productive intersection and that it be fruitful. And so often it hasn't been, and you, you highlight in an essay of yours, there can be a, a sort of dogmatic, two, two dogmas coming together. You know, I'm hearing in that description uh, a complementary aspect of science and spirituality. And not only that, but if we extrapolate that out from the individual's experience societally, if we sort of fast forward 
50, 100 years, if we were to lead with this integrated mind-informing brain, brain-informing mind sort of view, that's remarkably exciting. I'm wondering where your nerdy mind might go with that because you know, we can look at the, yeah. you've described some of the first person experiences and I know yeah. your, your journey as a meditator and as an academic would be richly informed. And, and um, what, what can you say to the collective unfolding? What implications might neurodharma have for our collective evolution? It's a very deep topic. So first, um, to be clear, uh, I'm, I intend to write a book called Neurodharma, right. and uh, I don't steal my title. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I said that to the world, although you cannot copyright a title, which is interesting. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, so the, but the point I'm making is, so the, there's no book yet about that. If people want to learn more, uh, they can go to my website, and I, I have material related to this. And more and more, I'm teaching in this way, and I do intend to write that book. And, 2019 and probably won't get published till 2020, uh, maybe 21. But it, so I don't want to disappoint people. That's just a detail. Um, to the much more important point, I want. Let's see. I'd say a couple things. I'd say first, I think it's important, in the spirit of that humility to recognize that the great saints and sages did not need an MRI. They did not need an EEG. Their methods were productive. They themselves became awakened. Very large numbers of people throughout history have become awakened or moved very far along the path of awakening. And, and in our lives today, it's the case. Um, and people don't need a third person understanding of the hardware for their practice to be sincere and effective. That said, as we really embed the mind in life, in living processes, embedded in nature and culture broadly, that to me tends, helps to correct the kind of Western individualistic conceit that you see especially in American culture, I think. Uh, so I'm from America. Although I tell people I'm, when I'm traveling in Europe, I'm from California. <laughs> <laughs> I was joking with a friend. You can prevent arguments, but anyway. It's, it's one of the four intelligent states is how I referred to it rather um, playfully. Oh, that's friends, what Washington, I think, and, and Oregon would be included in that. That's right, that's right. We're, anyway, but, so... I'll try not to blather here. Uh, the, the, the point though, so my point is that I think that that intersection of the first and the third person perspective uh, is very hopeful and fruitful. And for me then to cut to the chase, uh, I feel, I'm gonna try, well, I'll just say it like this. So. To put this in the language of the Buddha's drive theory of suffering, the Four Noble Truths, which are entirely psychological. I think Freud would have approved. They're a purely psychological model. The fulcrum of practice is between the second and the third noble truths. In other words, the first truth being that there is suffering, second, the cause of suffering is craving, broadly defined. Third noble truth is it's possible not to crave and therefore not to suffer. Fourth noble truth, there's a path that embodies and leads to that reduction, including 
the ultimately radical reduction or elimination of craving. All right, what is craving? Craving in a, a neuropsychological sense is a drive state based on an underlying sense of deficit and disturbance. We crave because in the core of our being, often running in the background, is a sense, even subtle, that something is missing, something is wrong. That's the engine of craving. And as a result of that engine of craving, people uh, react with fear and anger or greed and possessiveness or us against them conflicts. That's very much the story of the human tribe. In the 21st century, we actually have the technological and material conditions that are available to help people um, legitimately and authentically not have anything missing or anything wrong in a far in a far-reaching kind of way. We we are able now to we have the um, know-how and technology. We have the material means, which was not available until the last generation or two to satisfy our three fundamental needs in terms of which we tend to feel something is missing and something is wrong. Those three fundamental needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection loosely related to the reptilian brainstem, mammalian subcortex, primate human cortex, neocortex. And so the point is, to finish, I think with neurodharma, there's an opportunity to really understand that repeatedly experiencing and internalizing the felt sense of needs met, a sufficiency of safety when it's true, a sufficiency of satisfaction, a sufficiency of connection, that through repeatedly in having and internalizing those experiences, and when I say internalizing, I mean literally hardwiring the residues of those experiences into the nervous system and the body in general. As people repeatedly do that, they build up what I call an unshakable core. Mm -hmm. uh, a green zone brain is another way of talking about it, so that they can meet the next moment feeling already full, already in balance, even as they must deal with challenges. Mm -hmm. Challenges will not stop. People will compete. Uh, there will be challenges. There will be old age, disease, and death, and a few other things as well. Your favorite football team losing the championship in the last minute. You know, I mean, things will happen, right? Uh, things wear out, rust never sleeps. There will be challenges, but can we meet those challenges on the basis of a core that's unshakable, that feels already at peace, already contented, and already loved and loving, instead of uh, meeting the moment on the basis of the second noble truth of craving with an underlying sense of fear, frustration, and hurt or loneliness or inadequacy. And what I think is the great opportunity that's historically unprecedented, because the object of conditions that would promote a green zone brain were not present throughout human evolution in the last two, 300,000 years that anatomically modern humans have been on the planet. It just wasn't possible to keep people out of craving uh, this side of enlightenment. But increasingly, it actually is possible to protect people for safety, feed them for satisfaction, and create the rule of law in civil society and common justice uh, in terms of uh, our needs for connection. And the opportunity to finish is that 
if we get a critical mass of humans who repeatedly have and internalize experiences of a sufficiency, not perfection, but a sufficiency of needs met, if we can roughly get 100 million or a billion brains in the green zone, most minutes and most days, I think we can change the course of human history, which has looked all too much like Game of Thrones since agriculture was invented 10,000 years ago. Yeah, right. I just take a moment to sort of have an inner bow to that intention and that function and purpose for many of us really being alive and, and, and being here is to serve humanity in that way. And if, when you speak of the green zone and, and, and that sort of uh, core, that unshakable core, two, two things came to mind for me was one that that, that will um, we know now through a third person scientific lens in all likelihood be inherited um, by your children or your children's children or, or both to some extent or other. I'm assuming that the sort of transfer of intergenerational trauma applies to um, non-traumatic yeah. transfer as well. And the second thing and I'd like to perhaps speak to both is it's more immediately transferable as well in a in the experience of someone walking into the room who is fully, firmly in presence, in that embodied core of centeredness, that has an impact and an influence that's palpable um, for those in that room. So there's both the sort of inherited down the line impact of this, this coming together, this neurodharma applied, and there is a, uh, an even more immediate transmission or transference, which is sort of happening all the time, not just when people are taking on the teacher role. So they seem to be two. say yes to both of those. You mm -hmm. just beautifully said the first one is a little co more complicated. Uh, the idea of you're describing uh, epigenetic transmission uh, down the generations and uh, what I would say to that is um, <clears throat> the science is very young in that regard. Maybe I could unpack that for people slightly. Mm -hmm. So there's been a big controversy in evolution and biology. Uh, can our experiences change our DNA? And our experiences do not seem able to in our life history. So for example, a, a life of trauma before having a child or a life of a green zone um, contentment and centeredness and calm strength does not ch itself change our DNA in terms of what's in the ova or the sperm cells and then can be passed down to our children and their children but it does seem to change as you know uh, the expression of the genes in our DNA and it does appear very much that um, certainly traumatic experiences can um, lead to changes uh, in the expression of genes uh, inside sperm cells or ova cells that then can be handed down to our children and their children. And it could therefore also be the case, as you say, that a life of resilience and, and resilient well-being and spiritual practice and deepening in our core before we conceive children could potentially alter the epigenetic expression in various, the chromosomal material around uh, the, uh, the DNA um, that is handed down 
um, such that we might be able to give our children a great gift and help them come out, as it were, more resilient and more grounded in well-being, at least in terms of the genetic influences over that. And that's really quite hopeful. And then, of course, in addition to that, you're totally right. When you're around people, like I feel it around you, Will, that kind of boom, boom. You know, what was your line? A ninja for happiness or something? A new earth ninja is the sort of avatar we play with at Love and Truth. Yeah, Earth. yeah, that's very cool stuff. And uh, yeah, we there's definitely also a lot of science about how we pick up. Uh, I won't say so much energy, although I think that's probably true too. But we definitely pick up attitudes and and characteristics and qualities uh, for better or worse from people around us is a kind of contagion as described emotional contagion for better or worse. Yeah. I, rec I recall that study recently. I think it was saying that if you, one of the, the, the findings was that if you um, know several depressed people, you are more likely to experience depression yourself and, and vice versa. That was just one, one example talked, talked about that sort of contagious aspect and from a unitive um, view of, of of oneness it makes perfect sense and what I like about this is that we're one, one can have a, a an experience of the unitive nature of all phenomena one can have an experience a subjective experience of raw core subjectivity you know and what is so helpful with the third party perspectives of um, quantum mechanics and social systems, chaos theory, and so much else is really pointing to that unitive oneness kind of being a scientific fact as well. I've, I've leapt forward a little bit there, but I'm wondering if you can um, speak to what science might have to say about the, the unitive nature of all things or, or the oneness of humanity. Hmm. Well, so uh, I try to, be accurate, which means modest, about uh, my scientific attainments, as it were. I'm, I'm a methods guy. I'm a practitioner. I'm very interested in applications. My understanding from the physics that fascinates me, so I speak as an interested bystander, as it were, uh, is that what you're saying is absolutely right, that there is only one material reality and the fabric of that material reality uh, uh, underpins everything so that everything, I mean, this jacket, you know, my cells, the atoms inside my cheeks, the sound, the sound waves, the electromagnetic waves that connect you and me roughly 10,000 miles apart. All of that is simply a patterning, typically transient patternings of the one underlying um, material ground, you know, fabric, I'll call it fabric, uh, of the material universe. And for me, from a personal practice standpoint, a deeply compelling felt metaphor is that of eddies in the stream. Hmm. Think about eddies swirling along and their nature, they, they arise due to conditions. So there's an ordering emerging out of fertile chaos, if you will, fertile noise, uh, which is in a sense, a field of unconditionality, not yet conditioned. So the eddy merging is a conditioning, if you will, um, of the underlying fabric of things, of material reality. I haven't gotten into God yet, 
just talking straight up physics here, basically. And so you have this image of an eddy, and the eddy is a local patterning of one thing. One, I say thing loosely, because it's energy and matter entwined. Um, and that means, therefore, that you right now, I right now, uh, from a material standpoint, are simply a local expression of the entire universe. <laughs> I, I love how there was a, a slightly reductive, just simply a localized expression of the entire universe. It's sort of at once very ordinary and, and rather extraordinary as well to hold. It is. That. It totally gasses me. And yeah. when you get that, it's totally true. And you, it, you know, people use the metaphor. You look at, you see a wave, and you realize there is a wave. So your wave and that wave and this wave are distinct, meaningfully distinct. Um, they have, in a sense, loosely using the word, their own karmas, certainly in this life, right? Your wave and my wave, due to many causes. And, and yet, at a deeper level, uh, we're just ocean. Mm. We're just local patternings of the ocean. And when our wave, all eddies disperse eventually, even big ones, like galaxies or the sun. Mm -hmm. um, the sun, as you probably know, will gradually eat up its supplies and three, four billion years from now, give or take, will become a red giant and swallow up Mercury, Venus, and Earth, maybe Mars, and then it'll slowly contract again to a white dwarf. Uh, it's like the little children say, all gone, right? <laughs> you know, our galaxy and the Andromeda galaxy, about a million light years apart are gradually coming close together. And again, several billion years or so from now, they're gonna kind of merge into a larger eddy, swirling around and who knows what little micro eddies will be kicked out mm -hmm. over different time scales. One of the things detail that fascinates me intellectually, but especially from a practice standpoint is to pay attention to different scales of time and space, uh, both for time things that happen extremely quickly like the rapidity of neural firings and you know little events interpersonally um micro expressions that last a third of a second or thoughts that you can watch them arising and then passing away in less than a second but also things that happen very slowly and yet they still happen you know the rotation of the milky way galaxy and it's a giant eddy and things like that so um for me from a practice standpoint, recognizing the fact of all that, that you and I and the microphone and this piece of paper and all of it are local patternings of one fabric, that just relaxes me. Mm -hmm. It helps me step out of a quarrel with my wife a lot faster mm -hmm. to have the felt recognition. It may start purely intellectually and that's okay, but it comes down into a felt recognition of that truth you just lighten up really fast yeah you know you see the wave next to you suffering and you want to do something about it and yet and simultaneously you don't take it so seriously because what's happening in that wave next to you is a result of so many things it reminds me i'll finish on this uh the t.s Eliot line i've thought about so many times teach me to care and not to care That's about as succinct as that paradox could be expressed, isn't it? That's exquisite. I thought you were going to say another T.S. Eliot line, and I, I, I love that. I'm not sure if I've actually read it. That's beautiful. Teach me to care and not to care. Yeah. 
And it's, it's a prayer. Apparently it's this poem he, after his conversion to Christianity, quite a spiritual poem. And it's a kind of prayer. Teach me to care, mm -hmm. not to care. It's compassion and equanimity together right there. Yeah, and, and this, this is a, a, a paradox we seek to, one of the things that love and truth that we're, we, we play with and enjoy exploring with people such as yourself and, and sharing with a wider audience is um, paralogical thinking as one of our previous guests, Tim Freak would have it. And to recognize that really in a deep sense, nothing matters. And in a deep sense, every single thing matters. Each choice, each breath, each communication, each moment is, is, is precious. And within that oneness rippling out and, and, and causative to the rest of what is happening. And I, I liked hearing you say the, the fact, you know, I think it's really helpful. Um, you know, having a lot of hippies running around speaking of oneness and unity, um, it, was, it was great, but it didn't really change the world at a macro level in terms of its political structures and so on. But, but science is rather more listened to, it's rather more heard collectively it's seen as rather more reliable certainly within europe i know that in, in in the us the president has to do god um in the uk the prime minister can't do god that's kind of uh, the simplistic difference so it, it seems that you offer an example there of the communication with your wife being softened or expanded through that awareness and then on the on the on the broader level, if we really sort of got into a new human story, a new human narrative, where we accepted and were more consciously aware of the fact of our oneness, of our being part of this one field, experiencing itself subjectively, that that feels like it could change things in a different way. I hope so. I mean, a little catchphrase for me is. Um, love the wave be the ocean hmm. you know and in my own personal practice i'm trying to help myself uh, increase and stabilize the background sense of kind of being a local expression of everything uh, in a felt way and um and then also i'm trying to help myself in my practice uh, when I get identified with a particular eddy swirling through my mind, like Urf, my position earlier today about my wife critiquing my driving, Urf. Uh, I try to help myself, you know, when I, I'm doing it like a wave emerging out of the sea, you know, when you find yourself in the wave, getting all righteous about your wave and all the rest of that, I'm trying to help myself in my practice recover more and more quickly. And, hmm. Uh, as my friend Jamal Yogis, I don't know if you know Jamal, um, writes in his book, All Our Waves Are Water. Hmm. It's a lovely title. Yeah. Anyway. There's, there's a beautiful book. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Bernardo Castrop. He uses the metaphors. He wrote a book called uh, Why Materialism is Baloney. <laughs> and he used some really, um, so he's actually, he's actually Dutch, but he's got a very nice Americanized title there. And, and he utilizes many of these similar metaphors uh, to explain consciousness, to explain our experience. And it does seem that uh, in, in his work and in, in what you're pointing us to and uh, many a spiritual tradition, Taoism, probably the most obvious, that, that the metaphor of water or, or water being the, the way that we 
metaphorically understand this material world can be particularly helpful. And it seems that both the med meditative inquiry and our uh, microscopic macro inquiry is pointing to a fluidity and is pointing to a more water-like reality, a more water-like level of experience of, of, of self, of identity, of the world around us than, um, than, than the physical, solid, material world, the mechanistic world, the, the computer world that we have meta metaphorically created in, in our thinking. And, and that, for me, is representative of a more feminine, a more receptive way of being and consciousness. And I'd be interested to hear your view on that, particularly as someone who, for me, neurodharma is an integration of masculine and feminine in many respects, mm -hmm. and someone who's been in the academic world for, for much of your life, which tends to be more, you know, like many cultural uh, expressions, more patriarchal yeah. or more masculine. Um, so can you speak perhaps to, to, to <laughs> any of that? <laughs> well, my first thought is you are one smart dude. Uh, <laughs> from California, like I said. Uh, my thought is, I think uh, the language of masculine and feminine is a, is, is a, line, is a minefield. Mm. And that said, um, I can maybe there's there's two other words mm -hmm. that I can offer because I, I they're, they're, it's such a necessary dichotomy and yet I hear you it's such an unhelpful having the gender words in there is so unhelpful. Um, if we were to say a receptive yeah. mode of consciousness and an output mode yeah. of consciousness, something like that. I think I think you're. I think well I. It's a very deep question. Like, for example, if you just look at uh, the last 30 years or so of history in the West, so to some extent, the rest of the world, things are safer than ever. People are more secure than ever objectively on 50 measures. And just to... Just to rounded with... Just to briefly emphasize that that is actually a statement of fact. It's very easy yeah. to watch the media and believe the collective that you know, things are, but actually, by all objective measures, literacy, child yeah. mortality, childhood mortality rates, uh, rule of law, uh, civil society, um, reduction in armed conflicts, homicide—you know, the uh, homicide rates going down. I mean, just so many things mm -hmm. are better than ever. Um, uh, medical care that can handle trauma, physical trauma, you know, survival rates from car accidents increase, you know, just all that. And at the same time, we have, um, through technology, social media and through other means, uh, had a much greater sense of connection uh, and understanding and interdependence and uh, information, shared information about each other. At the same time, as we've seen over uh, 30 plus years, certainly in America, and then I think kind of recently in Europe uh, as well, there's been a growing 
of backlash against inter in effect interconnectedness, interdependence, and uh, a growing um, intensity uh, of tribalism related to kind of classically authoritarianism and typically with male authoritarians, speaking of masculine tribalism. And it's an interesting question. How does, how might, um, you know, so it's curious to me that in the middle of all this interconnectedness, there are many, many people who clearly feel deeply threatened by it. And very often, the, the truth is, at least in America, I can speak about American politics with a lot, with a lot of knowledge. I won't say the same about European politics, although I'm interested in that. And for example, in the UK, the rise to Brexit and so forth. In America, at least, the people who tend to be most um, uh, interested in white nationalism, and that's the essence of the Trump base, white nationalist voters, they're doing fine economically and they live in the safest areas of the country. They are least affected by immigrants, legal or illegal. And so it's a very curious thing to me that the um, increase of connectedness should in the same way breed a certain unsettledness and counterattack that then gets exploited by wealthy elites to drive political policies that um, put money in their pocket. Um, it's a really interesting process. So the question then becomes, what's the opportunity here? And I guess what I'm trying to get at is that maybe this goes back to the Buddhist teachings about there must also be a moral dimension. What I mean is, it's not a, I think some of these people naively think that just because uh, we can uh, feel connected to people around the world through selfies or through pop culture or through rapid media, that itself doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to live together in peace and sustainable prosperity. And in fact, clearly, um, the Russian government, which I distinguish from the Russian people, has massively exploited uh, social media um, over the last 10 years, uh, kind of as part of its long tradition of disrupting democratic processes in other countries, to really, really, really attack the foundations of democracy in America and elsewhere, uh, you know, and the foundations being free and fair elections. Uh, and so with no, with no thumb on the scales. And so I guess what I would just, my takeaway from all this um, is to underline virtue and moral commitment and values. And second, underline personal practice. Hmm. I think that uh, Marx was right that the material conditions are highly influential and, uh, and we can never lose sight of the, so the naturalistic fallacy, this idea that somehow is, is creates ought. Ought and is, what's factually true and what should be true are categorically distinct. And so just because we create certain objective conditions, like China, China's becoming more prosperous, Democracy there is on the decline. Um, just because material conditions are favorable doesn't necessarily mean that certain values like love and truth uh, are going to be sustained. That, for me, that takes will. That's the moral part and takes personal practice.
Yeah, I love the bringing together of the two. And what I heard in the fact that white nationalists tend not to be the most disadvantaged yet are activated very powerfully is um, really pointing to that reality of what's always been true, but especially so in the post-truth world, that the facts don't matter so much. If you can convince people or, or create the, the, the feeling in their body in a moment of, of fear, of, of being threatened, even if there's no evidence of it whatsoever, then they will still be manipulated um, in, in, in the direction that is desired. Uh, and sadly, that is what Goebbels knew. It's what Karl Rove knows. It's what all these very clever individuals understand on, on how to uh, manipulate people to behave in certain directions. And that brings it back then to that personal practice, because when that core is established, when we're nourishing that capacity to stay in connection, to be liberated as far as possible from uh, self-loathing, from, uh, from, from that conditioned fear that's not borne out by our actual reality. In liberation from that, we are not going to be influenced, manipulated by that system, by that matrix, as we, uh, we sort of use that metaphor here at Love and Truth Party quite a lot. So I, I like that because it just really brings to a focus point how our personal practice and showing up in the world as a, as a new earth ninja or a conscious change agent really, really are so, in, uh, so dependent upon each other. One, one really has to, 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 to be the foundation for, for, for the other, in, in, in my view. And, and perhaps that might be a nice way for us to, uh, to, 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 to explore. Um, what does it take for an individual to be most effective as a, as a sacred activist or as a, as a, as a social justice uh, warrior, if you like? Um, if I can lead in with a... Um, so a friend of mine, Michael Richardson Bourne, uh, wrote an article questioning whether the level of consciousness of a protest might be the determining factor in its mm -hmm. efficacy. Interesting. And perhaps that's something we can explore a little bit, um, how that personal practice influences the, the embodied expression, the, the reactions to the, you know, a, a protest can be pretty hectic if, if police are present and they're feeling reactive or fearful or, or judged or, or unconnected. Um, yeah, so maybe you can comment on that. What, what, what does it really take to be a new earth ninja, to, um, to, to be a meditator and an activist at the same time? How, how do you see those two intermingling? This is great. So, uh, you know, I'm old enough now. I, I kind of came of age in the late 60s and early 70s. And in America, that was a time of great, great ferment. I think in, in Europe and the UK as well. And uh, that said, and, you know, I participated in demonstrations and I did things to some extent. But I want to be really clear. There are people who have put their, their bodies, their, their lives and their fortune. Uh, on the line, their, their money, in other words, on the line, probably you included, for uh, social action of various kinds, and that's not me, so I don't want to presume some special knowledge. What strikes me, two things strike me about it that I could kind of offer, 
that uh, others who are more engaged than I am in this world, I mean, I do what I can, but there are people who are really uh, have deep expertise in this area. The first that strikes me is the untapped power of moral disgust. Hmm. And as a Buddhist guy, of course, I'm a little careful about those afflictive states, if you will, disgust, shame, and so forth. But uh, a little bit, I think, back to the history of the slave trade and Britain's role in the abolition of that slave trade in the early 1800s, 1810, 1820, and the mobilization through really a handful of people, which then spread, uh, to really be disgusted by it. And disgust, in terms of evolution, probably the two original emotions are fear and disgust because those are the ones that have the most uh, primal relationship to uh, survival, especially disgust. And if you think about it, we're disgusted, you just make your mouth do it. And you wanna get it out. Worms get disgusted, crabs, definitely. Spew it out, fish, lizards for sure. Disgust is primal. And I think um, we need to, I think there's an untapped power here related to disgust that's very potent. And I think mm -hmm. oftentimes people who are, let's say liberal or progressive or particularly conscious are leery of bringing disgust to bear because disgust is a short hop to hatred and you don't want to hate your enemy. Mm -hmm. But I think it's possible to be disgusted and to cleverly mobilize uh, disgust on behalf of your cause, much as the abolitionists did uh, in the cause of um, ending slavery in the UK and to some extent in America. It wasn't, they didn't really tap into the disgust. It was more of an economic argument initially. They gradually moved to disgust. But I think disgust is something to really tap into. For example, a uh, little detail, my cousin uh, is a wonderful guy and I, I have several, a number of cousins and one cousin in particular is an oil man in North Dakota. And he's a good guy. He's a good guy. And he makes his living through uh, fracking and spewing vast clouds of carbon dioxide into the air. And he took me up in his, of course, personal airplane because he's wealthy now, flying over this area in North Dakota, hundreds of square miles. And every and, and in the horizon, you would see half a dozen or more jets of flame shooting up out of the earth. Just a, a, a pillar of flame, 50 feet, 100 feet tall, with big black clouds spewing up from that. And what that is, is basically the outgassing, the excess waste uh, from the oil that is fracked two miles down. Uh, he says they have the technology that can send a drill down to hit something the size of a cell phone two miles down. It's that accurate. Uh, and then send out spokes from there that can do the same thing. So point is, to him, it's kind of pretty. It's like a nice flame. And it's a sign of commerce and prosperity for his children and their children. To me, it was shit being spewed up into the atmosphere that will eventually rain down on the heads of our grandchildren and ourselves. Mm -hmm. So I was, had a, I was disgusted by it. Mm -hmm. And for him, it was just another day at the office. And I think that there's a power in mobilizing disgust, this primal emotion for certain things. I think we should start helping people look at, um, these days people are disgusted. If someone in public today in uh, you know, some 
street. I was trying to think of some of the public squares in London. I was failing there. Anyway, if someone started beating a horse in public, people would be disgusted by that in a way that they would have shrugged 100, 200 years ago. Dickens, England, they wouldn't have been disgusted. A baby floating down the Thames, stark. Too bad. You know, not disgusted. But so you can see that over time, there is an evolution of disgust. And I think it's an untapped power. Uh, among progressives and it's the right is very good in mobilizing disgust fears of contamination are very much involved with um, conservative ideology and, and also to some extent brain regions that are activated around disgust and I think progressives uh, need to get better at disgust that's my first thought I, I love that. And just to speak to a personal detail that comes up around that, uh, I used to, my sister used to use the word disgusting, I thought rather too freely. And I would question, is that, is that really disgusting? And later on in life, I've had people use this word disgust. And actually recently I was involved in a debate whether I was probably coming from that maybe conditioned, conscious, progressive place where it's like, is this really helpful? As you say, it's a short hop to hate. So I'm loving and humbled by the wisdom that I'm hearing that in fact there might be an energy here, perhaps much like anger, that is very potent, very powerful, uh, righteous and just, and yet not utilized for fear of being unconscious or, or looking like we're hating people or not adhering to the appropriate bumper sticker of being the change or, or whatever it might be. I know, it's very interesting to think about that. And um, then the other thing is, I, I want to push back against the common meme these days in politics that facts don't matter and that we're in a post-truth world. I don't think thinking that is the solution. I think that thinking that is the problem. Mm -hmm. And throughout history, actually, there are many instances in which the gradual revelation of fact um, changed things for people over time. There will be people who speak and act in bad faith. They're not, in, they're, they're not acting in good faith. Uh, but for many people, they actually don't know what the real facts are. And the facts are really important to know. And the media on the whole is terrible at creating factual context because that requires a little bit of study and a willingness to assert something that someone could find you wrong on. It's safer to say, he said, they said, you know, blah, blah, that's easy. You know, you're just reporting on the horse race. You're not describing anything that's factual. But as a result, many people have no idea, like the whole Brexit vote. My understanding is um, that there were just a lot of factual, mis you know, untruths that were incredibly yeah. relevant. Like how one, it turn out for yeah, Britain. One 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 lie in particular really was that you know, there was this 50 billion cost. Where there was just purely and simply a lie. But yeah. it was put on the side of buses and was it was a very powerful figure. And yeah. that certainly was a driving force behind that. And I think that um, it, it's curious in, in, in your culture, because and I, I say your culture as America as a whole, through a European looking in or to, to myself looking in, one of the questions I've asked is that there, there is a fact, there are facts about the President of the United States based upon his own video confessions of attitudes uh, towards women and things that he's done to women that don't seem to have changed the debate. It hasn't, like that surely should be bringing forth disgust in the vast majority of men and women 
however many billions he's made, to be bragging about physically abusing and attacking a woman. That's disgusting. And yeah. it staggers me that it has not been more disgusting for more people in the US. It's very interesting. Yeah, I think one of the things, I'm gonna put it, if I were to offer from the sidelines as an amateur, mm -hmm. uh, some thoughts about guiding principles for uh, progressive social change. Mm -hmm. And uh, not that anyone really cares, but just to be kind of honest about it, if I were to describe my politics, it would be in three words, in order, libertarian, conservative, and progressive. And what I mean by that, libertarian, like get out of my business, you know, leave me alone, da -da. and then conservative, let's conserve what's good, let's steward the earth. Uh, and not dump 100 billion tons, 100 million tons a day, rather, of carbon dioxide into the air as human beings, half of which stays there. Uh, and then progressives. So that said, I think progressives uh, don't sustain a moral critique long enough. And they don't sustain a simple, sharp moral critique with confidence. And I think lying is disgusting in the public space. I think that people who lie are, you know, do think are doing something that's disgusting. To lie with intent repeatedly is disgusting, and I think that critique should be sustained, and it's important to bring and instead of just bouncing around from it. So, um, I have a notion that I'll just lay on you. That I'll drop back to American politics. We'll probably wrap up soon. In case if anyone's interested in what I have to say, the really short version is, if you think about it, what are the conditions for healthy human politics, healthy governance of the tribe. And to me, the answer to that question lies in an understanding of our evolutionary history. Until roughly the last 10,000 years, when agriculture and related things like the domestication of animals were introduced and when they spread around the world, slowly but surely, until then, the, 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 social, the typical social unit for human beings was around 50 people. 10, 20 of which were kids. That meant that the decision-making body, the political body, if you will, that humans um, are adapted to is around 30 adults who live together most of their life. And just think about that. You're on a bus. There are 30 people on the bus, let's say. That's, that's your tribe for life. Mm -hmm. Those are the people you're with. And if you, if you just think back on what it's like to be with the same 30 people for a week, let alone your whole life, three conditions are present. Common truth, common welfare, common justice. You can bullshit people a little while when you live with them that way, day in and day out, and you're in hunter-gatherers, you're walking around. A little bit of diffusion into and out of your band with other related bands. Often other bands are, are mortal threats. So, you know, there's a tendency to hunker down with us. Uh, you know, in that, that context, you can't hide the truth forever. Welfare is shared. What happens to you happens to me and vice versa. And leaders cannot escape justice. Even, you know, they can maybe escape justice for a season or two, but you start being a jerk as a leader, sooner or later, you're gonna get whooped on. Uh, well, people are just gonna say, you're out. We're going, we're, we're forming our new tribe. See you later. You know what I mean? But when you have, agriculture and surpluses that elites can gather to themselves for 
property and power, essentially, including hiring warriors and priests to justify their rule, then those three conditions of healthy human governance no longer um, obtain. They're just not present. They can be violated. Uh, truth, common truth can be violated. Common welfare can be violated. Common justice can be violated. And you have 10,000 years of Game of Thrones or the last 50 years in which democracies can be easily manipulated. And so to me, uh, the fundamental, and that's been like a big insight for me to realize, and I keep coming back to when I'm looking at something, what are the underlying causes and conditions, as let's say the Buddha taught, that um, enable things to go so wrong? Hmm. And if you don't have common truth or common welfare or common justice, then you don't have the underlying conditions for healthy human governance. And the question then becomes, and that's one reason why I love your, your project here, your program, Love and Truth Party, is to bring together truth, common truth, and then love, common welfare, common justice together. And so when I look at what happens in America, or I look at what kind of a mission statement for progressives, it's the restoration and the protection of these fragile conditions. They're innate when you're in a hunter-gatherer band. They're not innate when you've got a country of 10 million or 30 million or 320 million people in America or seven and a half billion people worldwide. So how do we recreate the conditions of healthy governance, common truth, common welfare, and common justice for the whole human tribe? Mm -hmm. So that the betas, in effect, the 95 can stand up to the five and reverse uh, the radical imbalance of uh, inequality of wealth and power that de began developing with agriculture 10,000 years ago. That's a great question and a great answer. And I've, uh, one thing that came forth to me, I know we're, we're short of time, was that, well, neurodharma is a great answer to that question. How can we, you know, is to really evoke these states, these insights into the individual. And, uh, of course, MSBR and, and the, 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 the making rational and reasonable uh, these types of activities is, is, is a great gift to our collective culture. Many people can now access meditation and get the same results without any of the trappings of buddhism or any other wisdom tradition that, that might otherwise push them away so it does feel an incredibly fertile time to be alive and i've just so enjoyed our dialogue today rick it really has been precious and, and beautiful i thank you so much for bringing your your time to us today and for really sharing the fruits of uh, a neurodharmically lived life you know exploring both of these aspects of the human okay. experience i'm very hopeful long term hmm. right uh, i think let's avoid a thermonuclear war and let's also avoid ai and you know getting that genie out of the bottle, I think that, and uh, let's avoid authoritarian totalitarianism. But I think if we can avoid those three major hazards uh, over the next 10,000 years, that's kind of a time frame, I think, in terms of our species has been around for 200, 300,000 years, which statistically means we're most likely to be in the middle of that range. So we probably have another 100, 200,000 years to go-ish right spreading through the solar system and beyond let's just try to avoid catastrophe and then i think we'll kind of muddle our way forward and and maybe be using anger and disgust at the idea of nuclear war for example i think there was a bit a bit of that in the 60s this idea of mutually assured destruction it was it was disgusting that we could yeah. 
yeah. blow each other up and, and maybe hoping for a politician that steps forward with a 10,000 year plan, you know, rather than the five That's year it. vision. That's <laughs> it. I, I think we need a catchphrase and if anyone could do it, it would be you, Will. Something about <laughs> joyful disgust. I mean, I, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'll leave you with this thought because we are being political here and I can't help it. If you watch people talking heads on TV, arguing about politics, turn off the sound, 80% of the time at least, you can tell who's conservative and who's liberal. The conservative is leaning forward, strong jaw, lots and lots of confidence. The liberal is typically sitting back, well, you know, kind of missing, I see your point, kind of missing words. Well, I, I'm not so sure, not radiating moral confidence. And I think mm. there's a place to reclaim moral confidence that's authentic, not out of righteousness. And, you know, then we be, you know, we become what we hate, what have you, but really uh, from a deserved standpoint, you know, courage. Like, yeah. A place of Satyagraha, a place of truth power as, uh, yeah. as Mahatma Gandhi so, so beautifully embodied for us. Yeah. That feels like a powerful way to, to complete our, our dialogue. Rick, I want to thank you again for all that you've done and for giving your time to us today and really encourage people to check out your multiple offerings although as you highlighted neurodharma the text they'll likely have to wait until at least 2019 maybe 2024 for the release and also just to, to wrap up for people as well if you've enjoyed this production and would like to support the creation of more similar programming and feel resonance with the call to be of service to an emergent human culture, please join us, download love letters, sign up for our newsletter, like and follow on Facebook, all the usual stuff, and check out the um, offerings on loveandtruthparty.org. You can also make a financial gift there. Thank you to all of our supporters and contributors. Together we are creating kind, conscious, courageous human community.